Uh, if you've got Bibles, do please grab them. We're going to go to, um, we're going to read Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, verse 23, to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. And Sophie is going to read for us. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born, because they saw he was no ordinary child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God, rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt, because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger, he persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched round them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall we say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle, and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and ill-treated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before him, he enjoyed the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary or lose heart. Well, please do keep your Bibles open there. And um, it is powerful, isn't it? I don't know how you've been feeling this week. There's been a lot going on, hasn't there? And interestingly, I was, I was going to start with a different intro, and I was just thinking about it this morning and sort of flipped, flipped it round, having listened to a bit of the radio, looking at the headlines. And I wonder, Frank, can you flick on the first slide? Because babies seem to be carriers of hope. It's interesting that this week in our church family, the Winterbottoms have had their baby daughter, Lottie, 
born on Wednesday. And for those of you who know them and been praying for them, you'll know that that isn't a straightforward birth. There's a, fra- a fragility there. But praise the Lord, their baby's been born. And we continue to pray for them as a family and pray for Lottie. But that's something to give thanks for. And here, in, in these two pictures, the one where you can just see the baby's face and the, the hand near it, that is baby Maya. She was born on Friday evening in Kiev in the metro station whilst a bombardment was happening. The people alongside the 23-year-old mum called the delivery a beacon of hope. A beacon of hope. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs tweeted something and they said, we will name this baby Freedom. (laughs) Another baby boy which pictured there in the, in the uh, top picture, was born healthy uh, during a bombardment yesterday in the basement of a hospital damaged by an attack. These birth of babies, hope for the future. And what it was interesting is listening to the radio commentator this morning, they said they, they speak of faith in the future, faith for the future. The press, if you just Google it, you can see Indian Times right through to the Telegraph Times, New York Times. Beacon of hope. Faith for the future. You see, everyone lives by faith. We all put our hope in something. It is deeply instinctive as human beings. Christians are different Not because we're people who live by faith, but because of the object of our faith. Jez drew that out superbly last week as we looked at the first half of Hebrews 11. He showed us there, um, again, looking at that uh, description we're given in verse uh, verse 1, that it whilst it's not an exhaustive summary of what faith is, it emphasizes relevantly that faith looks forward to something we can't see. Can you hear the resonance with just what's going on in the world at the moment, in Europe? These babies being tokens of something we can't yet see, but we hope. You see, faith, trust, is not belief in the absence of evidence, as Jez put it. It's not irrational. It's not a shot in the dark. Biblical faith is evidence in what God has said. It's trusting his words. It's knowing that when God says something, he will do it. And so here, in chapter 11, we get this crammed full chapter of examples of Old Testament believers, people who live by faith, ordinary frail people taking God at his word, trusting his promises about the future, even though they couldn't see physically at points how that was going to work out. So, I wonder, as we walk through this portrait gallery today, the second half of it, with the distinctives that the pastor draws out here in verses 23 to 40, what is it you need to see? Ask yourself that. Just open your heart and mind to the Lord now, just quietly in prayer. Lord, what do you want me to see that I need to grasp hold of? What is it you want me to hear? What is it you want me to see afresh and grow in? Well, let's move into this first section that I think I will spend most of my time in here, verses 23 to 31. 
which is looking at the issue of faith overcoming fear. You see, the pattern that the pastor puts in this portrait of faith is Israel's history. There's a pattern here. Uh, And in verses 23 to 29, what the pastor's doing, the writer here, is moving through these key periods in Israel's history. So in verses 23 to 29, we get snapshots from Moses' life and, and the monumental exodus. Then in verse 30 to 31, the focus switches to entering the promised land. And then in 32 to 38, the, the writer just has to gallop, like a lot of preachers. I'm running out of time. Fill it, fill it, fill it quick. <laughs> As he then scatterguns a load of um, references and, and scatters seed all over the place, showing how um, this movement of the, basically the Israelites as a tribe settling in the promised land right through to the exile. And coming back, and, and particularly that reference um, to the, in verse 34, to uh, the swords and the battles, seems to fit quite well with Esther's experience in Persia. And then we cover judges to kings to prophets, and, and, and as well as these well-known characters and some not so well-known, but the well-known ones like Samson, David, Samuel, and even Daniel's referenced. But interestingly, there are two nameless heroes there in verse 23. Did you spot that? They're there to catch our attention. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months. Moses' parents were both Levites. That is, they were from the line, the family, the tribe that would become the priests of Israel. Uh, And their names are recorded in Exodus chapter 5. Amram, Moses' dad, and his ingenious mum, Jochebed, who came up with the waterproof basket, Interestingly, in the Hebrew, the word for basket is the same as Noah's ark. It's the same word used there. In other words, mum sorted out a floating lifeboat. And Pharaoh, think about it, he's issued that terrible decree to control the birth of the Hebrew slaves. These male babies just thrown into the Nile. But Moses' parents refused to obey the evil order. Why? We're told it was faith that was at work in both parents. They saw he was no ordinary child. Literally, the child was beautiful. Now, that doesn't sound so surprising, does it? What parent doesn't think that their baby is special and beautiful? Babies are wonderful time wasters because they're so cute. They take up time just sitting and watching them and smiling. But there's something more going on here than that. Given the writer's description of faith as focused on things not yet seen, Hebrews 1, uh, 11 verse 1, baby Moses' beauty refers to more than just his physical appearance. His parents saw or perceived something not visible. There was something that was of God's bigger purpose. They trusted God for this child. They knew something bigger was at work here in his life. It was a purpose that came at a cost to them as well. They were going to lose Moses quite literally by giving him away, sailing him down a croc-infested river to be rescued by royalty. And at that moment, let's just pause there and think, uh, particularly for parents. But there's a note there, isn't there, about who we entrust our children to? Are, are we idolizing them? Are, are we making them the center of everything? Yes, you want the very best for them. Yes, you want them to, to, to be protected. Yes, you want them to succeed. You want them to love the Lord. And so from the first day we're given these precious children, 
We want to say, Lord, they're special in your sight. We give them to you. They belong to you. We prayerfully entrust them, whether they're one month old, 13 years old, 25 years old, 45 years old, 60. As a parent, you ask yourself, do you hunger after God? What fears might be motivating our parenting? What do we need to give over uh, to, to God in those fears? Is your faith in God central to your life? Does, do, do your children know that? Do they see that? Whether as a child, a teenager, or an adult, daughter or son. In Moses, his mum and dad, in his mum and dad, we see faith overcoming fear quite clearly here in this little anecdote here. They were not afraid of the king's edict. You see, God-given faith empowers us to put away our fears and do what is right. Just think, going against Pharaoh and that horrific semi-genocidal policy would surely mean that mum and dad would get punished, probably by death if it was found out. And yet Moses' parents didn't fear to protect Moses. Their trust and courage wasn't in their plan, but in the promise keeping God who brought Noah safely through a flood. A promise keeping God who looked after Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Uh, an unseen creator and provider who used Joseph to bring the tribes of Israel to security and provision. In that moment, faith meant letting go of Moses. They weren't in control. And their fearlessness, interestingly, overshadows or foreshadows their son's fearlessness. Did you see that? Uh, when facing the king's anger, verse 27, Moses left Egypt not fearing the king's anger. We're told Moses persevered because he, he saw him who was invisible. Now, how does that work? How do you see someone who's invisible? We're not told the mechanics here. This is before the burning bush. This is before Sinai. And whilst we're not given a, a, an explanation in one sense, Moses clearly believed that there was someone greater than Pharaoh. He wasn't the be-all and end-all. Growing up in that royal court showed him there must be a king over this king. The heritage of Joseph proves that Egypt had been sustained because of the Lord God, the creator, the invisible provider. And that faith, conquering fear, is seen at work in the, most, in the costly decisions Moses made. Have a look at verses 24 to 26. What are we told in 24? He refused to be known as Pharaoh's daughter. That is, Moses rejected the prestige of an identity in the royal family. He rejected that identity for the identity of a servant of God, aligned with these Hebrew slaves. Verse 25, he chose to be ill-treated with God's people. Rejecting the pleasures of sin, which are superficial, they're short-lived. Verse 26, look again. He chose disgrace, we're told, for the sake of Christ, as greater value than the treasures of Egypt. Moses rejected the prosperity at the hands of Pharaoh for the lasting reward offered by God. Three things he turned away from. Prestige, the approval people give. Pleasure, that endlessly chasing sinful distractions that promise so much and deliver so little. Prosperity, getting richer, 
And Moses made a calculation. Looking at the vast treasures of Egypt, which he could have enjoyed, and which you can still see today in the British Museum, some of them at least, the vast treasures, he looked at the reward of knowing Christ. Something and someone he couldn't see, he couldn't touch, he only anticipated. And it's, it's an interesting point there. How, does he, how is he looking to Christ? You, you should be asking that. Because we can't miss the fact that the writer here presents Moses as someone following Christ, the anointed one, the king. Moses lived long before Jesus, and yet he looked ahead to a time that there would be a better Passover lamb, someone who would save people from their sin. We're told in Deuteronomy 18, Moses, here's his faith in action, declares to Israel as they were about to enter the promised land where he wouldn't be going, he wouldn't be entering with them. The Lord made that clear. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among you. You must listen to him. And obviously, in one sense, that found its fulfillment. As the people went into the land, the judges were raised up, and then Samuel was raised up, and then more prophets after Elijah, Elisha, those references uh, and allusions are here in the text. But that, those prophets failed. They, they never really got there. And Moses knew there would be an ultimate prophet, one who would bring God's saving word and deliver on it. And you know what? By faith, he knew that prophet would come. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, we read this in all three uh, gospel accounts, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And interestingly, particularly in Luke, Luke chapter 9, we get this detail that Moses, Elijah, and Jesus are together, talking, having a conversation. And Luke tells us, based on the eyewitnesses' account of having met with Peter and talking it through, what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration, they were talking about redemption. You look at the footnote, the word there literally is exodus. How cool is that? They're having, Jesus goes, you know, Moses, when I made sure with the Father that we opened up the Red Sea and you walked through and all of that stuff, there's going to be a bigger one. And he goes, yeah, I kind of knew there was something more coming. <laughs> the redemption to come. Those eyes of faith seeing ahead. And fascinating, Jesus himself said, if you believed Moses to the uh, Israelite believers, the Jews of that time in John 5, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. You see, the maths made sense to Moses. God would reward, and that reward would last longer. So what does that mean for us? What does the maths look like today? Prestige, pleasure, prosperity, chuck in their security as well. Thinking of those parents, I'd have been beside myself. What do we do? Which ones grab our attention? And then when you think about it, what will your ambitions, your entertainment, that treasure, what will that be worth to us in a hundred years' time? What, what is Christ worth to you today? What area is he calling you to obedient faith for his sake? As a church, we've got to figure out what does that mean for Grace Church? To be obedient in faith, 
to live from a place of faith rather than fear, what does that look like? How do we apply that? How does that change the way we relate to each other and pursue and love and share the gospel in what feels at times a society that has moved so far away and yet is so hungry? As we're seeing now, people filled with, on one level, a fear that comes from huge uncertainty of things that we never thought would happen or fearful threats made over news items by leaders who seem to have lost a grip on what is really what we're about as humanity. It's interesting as well, I just want to pick up this fearless faith that's seen in Rahab, verse 31. This really excites me. A a daring Gentile woman who welcomed the Israelite spies into her home in Jericho. She gets a, a shout out here in Hebrews 11. What's fascinating is what she tells the spies. So let me just read this out from Joshua. So we're diving back into the Old Testament, Joshua chapter 2, verse 8. And Rahab has this conversation with them when they come. And she says, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear has fallen on us. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you and, when you, and what you did uh, to the two kings of the Amorites. When we heard of it, our hearts sank and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is in heaven above and on earth below. Now then swear to me by the Lord that you will show me kindness to my family. Our courage failed because of you. Because the Lord your God is giving you this land. She saw it. And you know what? She saw it based on news reports. She wasn't there to see the waters part. She didn't see the battleground. Just a word. And that was enough. It sparked her faith, sparked by news reports. Security in a city wall or the God who parts the sea. That was the choice. And her hope as well, interestingly, isn't in her virtue. We're told at different points in in Joshua's um, book and again in James, she was a prostitute. So it's not like she's coming saying, here's my CV, here's my good record of achievement. Her character would have been tarnished, clearly. And yet we see her faith. There's grace. God is at work. She even inspires the Israelite spies as they go back and say, we can do this. (laughs) We can take this city. So actually, in a strange way, she's being a bit of a pastor and evangelist to people who should know better. (laughs) And interestingly, this faith-conquering fear means that this isn't the only role of honor that Rahab shows up in. No, Matthew includes her, rightly, in Jesus' genealogy. She's part of the Savior's family line. Now, for, today, for us today, fear surely remains a powerful motivator, whether it's in the area of politics, especially with what we've seen this week with uh, war starting in Europe, starting in Ukraine, or whether it's the environment, or whether it's economics or healthcare issues. Fear can be a big factor in how we make decisions, can't it? Um, Michael Otts, who spoke at the Manchester Uni CU mission this week, in in his book, he highlights um, the speech that Greta Thunberg gave, that, that passionate appeal 
to the World Economic Forum in Davos. It's a good example of where she challenged the world leaders by saying, I don't want you to be hopeful. I want you to panic. I want you to feel the fear I feel every day, and I want you to act. It's impassioned, isn't it? Fear is a strong motivator. Get stuff done. Worry about it. Do something. And yet, however, being motivated by fear doesn't necessarily lead to lasting change. In fact, Otts points out that studies, um, particularly by the Australian Psycho Psychological Society, show that remaining in a state of heightened distress, as they put it, is not helpful for ourselves or for others. We generally cope better and are more effective at making changes when we are calm and rational. But the reality is we all experience fear, and it's a necessary part of life. But none of us wants to be ruled by it, do we? None of us wants to be under its burden. It can feel like a crippling panic, can't it? It can feel like low-level gloom. It's that uncertainty about the future, worry about work, concern for our relatives. And interestingly, Moses himself admits in the Exodus account, which he has preserved, that he was afraid. So actually, when you go back to Exodus and you read it, he's saying, he's afraid. Wait, so what, are you sort of spinning this, Mr. Hebrews writer? No, no, not at all. The, the writer of the Hebrews assumes his readers will know what went on in the Old Testament, that Abraham and Sarah and all the other heroes he's mentioned, including Moses, were flawed, were fragile, were, were, were frail people who struggled, who had ups and downs, who owned their, their yeah, I'm afraid. <laughs> What's going on? But... When we jump to the New Testament, we see Peter the Apostle as well. I, I love him. He, he's totally ruled by his fear. Having said, I'll be with you, Jesus, on the night of the arrest, around a campfire, he says it three times. I don't know him. I don't know him. Fear, gripping. So what's going on? Well, it's clear. We, we need to acknowledge that our lives are lived in the middle of a, a battle of fear and faith. It's a wrestling match. It's a wrestling match between anxiety and trust, isn't it? Wisdom and foolishness, hope and despair. Again, the, the biblical counselor, Paul Tripp, puts it so well. He says, the epicenter of that struggle in this is this question. Will the Lord do what he promised? Will the Lord provide? Can I step out in faith and courage knowing that the Lord is with me and will provide what I need when I need it? Should I be afraid, or is God trustworthy? They all flow out of that one big question. Will the Lord do what he has promised? You see, Moses, his parents, Rahab, all these believers here in Hebrews 11 were flawed, fragile, fearful, complicated people with sinful hearts. But each could overcome because they put their trust in someone bigger, someone more powerful than the fear they faced in that moment. Whether it was Pharaoh, whether it was an army, whether it was a tyrant king with a furnace, persecution, homelessness, sickness that kills an only son. They saw and put their faith in someone more powerful than that power at that moment. Their sightline of the eyes of their hearts was on the Lord God. And faith not only trusts God as all-powerful, which would be a frightening force on one level, 
but trust God as all loving and good. And that's something that C.S. Lewis wanted to draw out in his Narnia stories, particularly in, uh, it's an illustration we've used before, but one of a conversation with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver with Susan, and they're going off to meet Aslan, who represents God, the lion, and the white witch hates Aslan because of his power. That's all she sees. She hates him. Whereas the creatures who followed, like Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, knew something deeper. And when Susan was afraid of meeting Aslan and asked if he's safe, Mr. Beaver sort of chuckles and answers safe. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's good. He's the king. So Christian faith is marked by neither pessimism, which leads to despair, nor unfounded optimism, actually which takes you down a path of hopelessness. It is grounded on faith, which is realistic and hopeful because of the powerful God in whom it rests. Because of the God who in Christ has achieved everything we need. And that hope then is seen in faith that endures suffering. So these next two points are slightly quicker, but they're important because they're in the passage. So in verses 32 to verse 40, faith endures suffering. Now, in the football stadiums, you'll hear fans chanting at different points to the opposition, you only sing when you're winning. And it's something that Man City get quite a lot of <laughs> at points because when you're successful, no one really likes you. But when you're losing and you go quiet, that just inflames the opposition a bit more and gives them something to go at. So you only sing when you're winning. And when everything is going well, it's easy to celebrate, isn't it? But here in verses 32 to 35, there's a summary list of everything these amazing things, these things accomplished by God's people living by faith, from military victories to maintaining justice by the judges, uh, women receiving their dead back by resurrection, which is referring to miracles that Elijah and Elisha did, which again are signs, they're pointing forward to someone coming more powerfully who will bring the ultimate resurrection, Jesus Christ. And God graciously empowers these people to do amazing things as they trust in him by his power alone. It's him that's at work. And at those times, it's really easy, isn't it, to see how victorious faith in God is. You can go, oh, it really works. And it was the same when Jesus was doing his work. People wanted more miracles, healings, and feedings. But when his teaching got tough and challenging, that's when they moved away. And the same is true today. We want the gifts God gives, but on our terms. But in verse 35, did you notice there's a pivot? It's a really important one. There were those who were tortured, and then the list continues in verses 36 to 38. Wait a sec, that's a gear shift. Those who were tortured. You see, God's people suffered. They were mocked, they were flogged, there were prisons, stonings, horrible executions, destitution. You see, if you were going to a marketing firm and saying, can you help us with a bit of PR, they wouldn't say, let's back this campaign <laughs> to get people on board. People who put their faith in Christ will value him more than anything and are willing to suffer in this way, which is why it is a mark of faith. You see, faith gives us the power to sing when we're suffering, not just when we're winning. And can you see how these verses challenge the false teaching that's pushed under the label of Christianity that's all about health and wealth. 
It's prosperity teaching that focuses on living your best life now, meaning greater material comfort and financial blessings here and now. Yet all of these unnamed suffering believers had faith. But they weren't well off. They weren't prosperous. In the world's eyes, they had missed out. But God saw it, and he was pleased with it. He was pleased with them. And if you live the life of faith, the world won't get you. It's as simple as that. If you live the life of faith in Christ, the world won't get us. Our career choices, where we decide to live, which church we serve at, how we use our money, how we use our time, it won't make sense. This really struck me as I was watching a news report from 2015 this week. Um, So the news report is obviously several years old, but it was about Protestant Christians in Ukraine who had decided to stay in the separatist regions of Donetsk where they had planted churches. Even though their buildings had been forcibly taken off them and then being used as military barracks, they continued to meet in homes for services and prayer meetings. They are persecuted, and even more so now, their lives are in real danger, but they persevere. Yesterday, Pastor Sasha in Chernihiv, uh, which is in north Ukraine, it's uh, two hours from Kiev, that he sent this prayer request through the A29 network, which we're part of. And he says this, We've been in contact with many brothers and sisters all in different regions of the Ukraine. There is not one part of the country that is not feeling this evil attack. As we talk and cry with friends in our city, Chernihiv, we, ha- we can hear warning sirens in the background. Children are afraid. Mothers and fathers are wondering what they should do. We have young friends who have been sent to fight. Missionary friends outside Kiev who are preparing to house refugees and have already received a few. This is a very difficult time for Ukraine. But it's also a glorious time for God to show this power and love through the church. He goes on, please pray for protection over Ukraine, for our brothers and sisters there. Pray that God would give them strength as they walk in this dark time. Pray that the light and hope of the gospel would shine. Pray for the Christian Bible Church in Chernihiv, for Pastor Sasha, Laosha, and Dima as they lead the church there. Chernihiv has had some intense fighting in the past 24 hours. There have been many tanks, much shooting around the city. Russian drones using missiles have blown up an old Soviet airport three blocks away from our old house where their child Gavin used to play. Ukrainian troops are fighting to keep Chernihiv out of the control of Russia, and so far they have. Pray for the church as a whole in Ukraine to know how to know and love Christ more this time. Pray for peace and for Christians to serve where they can. Pray for the salvation of many Ukrainians and Russians through this war. Pray this war would end soon. Can you hear the heart of glorious faith soaked in painful reality? Did you hear that? Glorious faith soaked in painful reality, but not giving in to fear, enduring suffering, because ultimately, and this verse should make us tear up, these verses, faith is fixed on Jesus, and that triumphs. 
chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, we're given this cloud of witnesses. And as we extend our thoughts, we're given a history of the church, which has added even more stories of people who have lived sacrificial lives of service, like Pandita Ramabai in India, like Betsy Ten Boom in uh, the Netherlands, for Jim Elliot, Florence Nightingale, all, all because they looked forward to something bigger. And verse 40, this hope that God has planned something better for us, that only together with us, that we would be made perfect, means that faith fixed on Jesus triumphs. These examples have been given of inspirational faith to make us not feel bad about ourselves, but to keep in mind the goal the pastor has. Look at verse 1 there in chapter 12. Thanks, Frank, if you can flip the slide on. Thank you. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run with perseverance. Do you see, they're our cheerleaders, they're our encouragers. Last week, Jez used that great picture from his 10K run of the groups of supporters giving high fives, spurring us on by their, um, their cheers for the runners at different stages in the race. Well, here, from the finish line in God's kingdom, these Old Testament saints, some of them nameless to us, are encouraging and spurring us on Christians all over the world by their faith-filled example. And they're not marking scorecards to see how we're performing. They're a reminder to us. We look to Christ and follow him to see what is possible with faith in him. And when you walk around some of the sporting stadiums in our country, like at the Etihad, they have these huge um, banners and pictures of players like Sterling and Steph Horton and key moments in the club's history. They, they have them all draped over the stadium. So as you look up, you see these massive pictures. And they're deliberate. They're there to inspire the fans as they're walking in to say, you're part of this community. This is what we've done together. This is your hope, your victory. And there is a Wow. And these Old Testament believers remind us to look to the finish line where we'll see Jesus in his glory. But the ultimate witness is Jesus. We're told to fix our eyes on him. What are we, what's there in verse 2? We're told he endured the shame of the cross. Not only carrying our sin before God, he was also rejected, despised, and opposed by sinful people. Perhaps the writer had in mind that these readers, these Jewish Christians, were enduring similar. They were despised, they were opposed, they were drifting back into a, a religion that was very physical and seen and protected. But no, despised and opposed for believing in a crucified saviour. You see, certainly Bible-believing evangelical Christians, whether it's in the Ukraine or elsewhere in the world, even here in the UK, over the years ahead, perhaps we'll face similar rejection and persecution as we hold this gospel message. But how did Jesus keep going? Verse 2, the joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame. He was looking forward to a better future that God had promised and he achieved. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. We've seen that phrase several times in Hebrews. It means the work is done. It's secure. It's finished. He's at the Father's right hand. And we keep going the same way, looking forward to the better future he's promised. The amazing gift is that Jesus' better future, the glory he was looking for, is ours. That's our future. 
enduring the cross to save us and bring us into his kingdom. His joy is the reality of the family he's made, saved by his blood from every tribe, language, and nation. And it's mind-blowing to think that the joy set before him is the joy of you and me being with him as his people forever. He was running to save us. He was running to save us. So let this be the defense that pushes back against fear. Let this be the fuel that we won't grow weary and tired and lose heart this week as we serve the King of Kings. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us so much in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gift of faith to be able to see you who is invisible to be able to welcome and know the glory of that finish line, of that welcome in your kingdom, because Jesus, our pioneer and perfecter, has done it all through his death and resurrection. Lord, give us opportunities this week to serve and to live from a place of faith, not crushed by fear, enduring suffering, knowing your presence with us, and looking forward and with joy to the glory that is yours in your kingdom that we share in. Amen.